I know is all I wanted to do was run over and touch the coffee pot. <laughs> and if you're an alcoholic, I know you did too. <laughs> My name's Chico and I'm an alcoholic. Oh, that felt good. First of all, I'd like to thank the committee. I have to lower this a little bit. I am standing up, incidentally. <laughs> I'd like to thank the committee for allowing me the privilege to share in this, this wonderful roundup that you have. Uh, we'll always treasure the memory of it. It's, it's uh, really fantastic to see the, the love and service and fellowship that Alcoholics Anonymous has in this area here. This is our first trip to northern Minnesota. And it's just been fantastic. You people have been great. You know, when you're the Sunday speaker, so you'll know this for next year, <laughs> you, you tend to be largely invisible. Because often what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous is that we're sort of intimidated to talk to people until after they told their story. Then we feel like we know them. And... Uh, Sunday's kind of a tough slot. But I have to tell you that so many of you went out of your way to, to get to know me and my wife that it really was kind of nice. You know, I didn't feel like I was invisible all of the time. You know, most of the time we were surrounded with people that really shared a lot of love with us. And I thank you for that. And I thank the committee for the privilege of being here. This committee is uh, so well organized that they had us fly up on Northwest Airlines, so we'd have an opportunity for 12-step work on the way up. <laughs> and they're giving us one going back. <laughs> Every speaker that, that, that has to stand up here and do this always wants to say the right thing. And we worry about that and we think about it and we try not to get nervous about it. And there's a little story I like to tell about someone that did say the right thing. And it has to do with some people who live way out in the country and they had no indoor plumbing. And finally the day came when they got some indoor plumbing and the lady of the house just couldn't wait to try it out. You know, the new luxury. So when it was time, she went and she tried out her in indoor plumbing and she sat there and just enjoyed the luxury of modern conveniences. However, prior to her going in there, they had painted the seat. And she sat there so long that the seat was stuck to her and she couldn't get up. So they had to unbolt the seat and they had to take her with the seat to the doctor's office. Now, I believe by the way that this story went, that the doctor was probably a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and knew the right thing to say because when she went into the doctor's office, she was totally humiliated and embarrassed and, and all she could manage to say to the doctor was, have you ever seen anything like this? And he said, yes, ma'am, but I've never seen one frame. <laughs> Well, you have to have things in perspective, you know. 
sort of like the guy that got his brand new pair of bifocals. Uh, I have a pair of bifocals, so I kind of like this. And um, he was going to try them out for a few days. You know how it is when you first get them, you're going like this because you can't see. So after a couple of days, his wife said to him, how do you like your new bifocals? And he said, well, they're pretty good, except for one thing. And she says, what's that? He says, well, every time I go to the bathroom while I'm admiring the big one, the little one pees on me. <laughs> Isn't identification wonderful? Before I forget, I want to be sure to tell you that I'm a Puerto Rican with an Irish disease. I was born in the capital of Puerto Rico, that's New York City. Actually, I am half Puerto Rican and half Colombian. My father was from Colombia, South America, and my mother's from Puerto Rico. We moved to Alexandria, Virginia when I was probably about a year old, and I had my early childhood there. And what I can remember about Alexandria, it was a small southern town, and we were among the very few people in town who were Hispanic. That's the new word. <laughs> and I, I didn't speak English until I went to the first grade, and we created kind of a, a stir in town when we walked down the street and we spoke Spanish. And, it's the first time that I felt myself being different from other people. And to complicate matters even more, my parents were, were dark and had black hair, and I had blonde curly hair and green eyes, sort of the white sheep of the family. And some of the things that I remember that made us different in those days was that although we lived in Alexandria, Virginia, my father worked in Washington, D.C. because they would not hire him and send him out of the Painters Union in Alexandria, Virginia because we were different. I was probably born an alcoholic. Personally, I don't think that matters a whole lot by the time that we get here. But uh, it's uh, probably a fact for me. And one of the things that, that leads me to that conclusion is that a lot of the things that I think are the, the inside things that, that are part of our alcoholism were already apparent in me when I was quite young. And I'm just going to tell you one story that will uh, typify my feelings that I was probably born an alcoholic. When I was quite young in grade school and we went out to recess to play ball, I was always a terrible baseball player and you know, I just couldn't play. I knew I couldn't play, so I couldn't play. And I was the kid that when they chose up sides, they picked me last. You know, I was always small, and, you know, it was sort of like the two team captains would get together and one would say to the other, well, you had them last time. I'll take them this time, you know, <laughs> and like that. And the only time I ever hit the ball was if the ball hit the bat first. <laughs> and one day I was up there, and uh, the ball hit the bat, and I managed to get the first base without falling down. And the first baseman had the ball in his glove, and he was standing like this. And I knew he had the ball in the glove. But I looked at my teammates, and there was something in their eyes. They expected something out of me. They expected something out of me. And I looked at second base over there, and I looked at third base, and I looked at home plate, 
And I knew they wanted me to go all the way around and score a run for them. And I looked back at the first baseman, or at the first baseman with the ball in the glove, and I pretended I didn't know he had it, and I stepped away from the base and he tagged me out. Because it seemed to be an easier, softer way. And in just that way, I continued to be tagged out in the game of life for a lot of years thereafter. Because I already had these feelings inside of not good enough, and I already had these feelings inside of apartness and of not belonging at that early age. I had my first drunk when I was 11. I started using drugs when I was 12. I started going to juvenile court when I was 12. My father died when I was 13 and we moved to Puerto Rico. And I discovered that in Puerto Rico I could go up to the bar on the corner and I could have a beer and it seemed to be all right. Apparently drinking was legal there or at least they didn't care. Uh, I certainly thought it was compulsory. And the thing that I remember is that even at that time, that alcohol was cunning, baffling, and powerful. There was a certain something that happened when I strolled up to the bar in my peg pants and my Cuban shirt, 13 years old, about this high, and walked up there and ordered a beer and got this high. And I was one of the big guys. And the crowd that I ran around with, the next youngest after me was 17. And the reason that I ran around with these older guys are mostly like seniors in high school and, and uh, college students was because they got a big kick about this kid that could drink more than they could. We'd go out partying and I would go with them and, and they would get drunk and I'd still be drinking. And it was kind of a big deal. And, you know, it became something that was important to me. I, I was kind of proud of that. I could hold my booze better than these big guys. So in my mind, therefore, that made me the big guy. We moved to Florida just before I turned 15. And I immediately gravitated to a crowd that was a drinking crowd. Uh, things were a little different in Florida. You had to be 21 to buy booze, but we always found a way. And not too long after I got to West Palm Beach, we went to, uh, I went to hang around an area that I'm sure probably most of you have never been to West Palm Beach, if any of you, but it's called Rosemary Avenue. And there's probably a Rosemary Avenue in every town in the South. And Rosemary Avenue is, is a street that's about 15 blocks long and it's mostly what we called back then juke joints and barbecue stands and little storefront churches and rooming houses and like that. And there's little, little bars in there and little juke joints that have names like Trouble's Place. Let's you know what's going to happen before you go in. <laughs> and by the time that I was 16 years old, I knew who the pimps were, I knew who the whores were, I knew who the drug dealers were, I knew who the real bad winos were, I knew who the thieves were, I knew what everybody did on the street because I was on the street with them. And I thought I had arrived, I figured that, that now I was where I needed to be, that I had arrived to the place that I wanted to spend my life, standing on the street corner looking cool. When other kids were 
thinking about becoming doctors and lawyers and, and things like that. I wanted to become a gangster. I wanted to drive a, a big Lincoln and cruise down that street with my tinted windows. step out with my flashy clothes and, and lots of rings and gold. But you know something, when you're an alcoholic, you can't even be successful at a gangster. It's an amazing thing. <laughs> I started getting arrested a lot. I went to jail some. Now this is, this is still, you know, this is um, in the 50s, so the Jim Crow laws were in effect in the South. And they didn't have a very big sense of humor about people like me getting in trouble in those days. And uh, one day we got picked up by the police and we had some beer with us and the cops took us to the station. And one of them said to me, who bought that beer for you? And we said, a white man bought it for us. And they said, oh yeah, well, what do you look like? And we said, we don't know, they all look alike to us. <laughs> I discovered that the local police had no sense of humor. <laughs> there was a movie out in those days that was called The Wild One with Marlon Brando. Y'all remember that? And I thought Marlon Brando was cool. So I couldn't afford a motorcycle because I was spending my money on drugs and booze. So I bought a jacket and pretended my motorcycle was in the shop. <laughs> And there was a line in that movie where Marlon Brando gets roughed up by these townspeople. And when they hit him, he says, Man, my old man could hit harder than that. And I thought that was absolutely the most awesome line I had ever heard. And I couldn't wait to use it. <laughs> so the next time that we went to jail, and the cops took us to the back room for a little question and answer, I said, Man... My old man could hit harder than that. But you know what? I was dead wrong. <laughs> dead wrong. During this period of time, I, I, I had arrived to the point in my alcoholism where I needed a morning drink. I was a daily drug user. The way that I got my money was by robbing people. I carried a switchblade with a six and a half inch blade in one pocket and a straight razor in the other and I hurt people. By the time I was 15 years old, I was rolling people. I was robbing people. Never carried a gun, don't know why. Somehow it didn't seem like armed robbery with a straight razor, you know. I'm sure that the people I robbed didn't feel that way, but that's the way that it was. The police watched me, you know, it's one of those deals that happens. Every time you walk down the street, you know they're looking for you. I got arrested for carrying concealed weapon. I got arrested for grand larceny. I got arrested for drunken disorderly. Got arrested for a lot of things. And the amazing thing about all of this is that I always managed to talk my way out of it. I went to jail a lot, but I never went to jail for a long time because I always was able to somehow talk my way out of it. And the other amazing thing about this is that I never once thought that alcohol or drugs had anything to do with it. I always thought that it was just, you know, the, the cops just, they, they never are understanding, right? But I, I just thought that there was, you know, someone else. It couldn't have been me. It couldn't have been my drinking. It couldn't have been my drugging. It had to be something else. I could not look at that. I could not see that other people 
didn't do these things, that other people that I knew were not hanging around on the corner of Rosemary Avenue. Uh, they weren't getting up on a Sunday morning feeling so bad and trying to come up with money to drink, that they were going to church or they were out picnicking with their families or whatever. I, I didn't see that, that there was something wrong with what I was doing. I got married for the first time when I was 18, and one of the things I've noticed since I've been in AA is that when we talk about marriage, often it's in plural. <laughs> Best way I can typify this marriage is to tell you that uh, I didn't make it home the first six Christmases in a row. We had three children in this marriage, and I was not home the first six Christmases in a row. I was out partying on Rosemary Avenue. I was drinking and being Mr. Big, and I was out with number one. And, the children's presence had to wait until I got home. I was a violent drunk. Uh, I was not a happy drunk. Uh, when I drank, uh, I tended to become unpredictable. My behavior was at least insane, and I was violent. When I went home, if I was drinking, everybody hoped that I would leave again. Because when I finally did show up, I if I was able to stand, I would start throwing things and fighting and, and uh, you could come to my house and you could see a bullet hole in the wall. You could see a, a door jam that was all hacked up where I tried to break in one night with a machete. Wife and kids were on the other side of the door. You could see gouges out of the wall where ashtrays and furniture were thrown and there was a lot of broken things in the house. And these children grew up in a home with a violent alcoholic father. I never had to hide my booze because everyone was afraid that they would, if, I, if they threw it away, that I would uh, do something to them. But interestingly enough, and it's amazing, I think we have to hide something. And I hid my empties because I didn't want anybody to know that I had them. You know, I, I would go out with all these empty beer cans or wine bottles or whatever I was drinking, and I would strategically locate them in the garbage so it wouldn't look like I drank them all in one night. Now, I don't know why I did this, except that I guess I thought the garbage men had some link with the rest of the world that would, you know, inform it, you know. And you could see it in the Palm Beach Post, right? It would say, Garbage Men State, Chico Cortez drank a case of booze last night. You know, you know how we are, right? So I did that. I was having DTs, and, and I was getting real sick, and I was having, you know, this is like 22 years old. And I, I was uh, having a lot of trouble with my booze, and I, I just couldn't admit it. I found myself getting drunker faster. No matter what I tried, it didn't seem to help. And I had never tried to quit drinking prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, that didn't seem to be the problem. But when I was 25 years old, I came to AA for the first time. Now, I didn't come because I saw the light. It was more because I felt the heat, you know? I separated from the family, and, and uh, there was a lot of pressure, and I had gone to uh, talk to this priest about the rotten wife and the rotten in-laws and the terrible life and the bad breaks and all this, and I never even mentioned booze. And he interrupted me somewhere in my sad story, and he said to me, do you want to do something about all this? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I think you should go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was totally astounded, because I had never mentioned booze. It might have been because I didn't have any shoes and I was dirty. and. You know, it didn't smell too good, I don't know, but, but I'd never mentioned booze. So he took me to AA, because I had said, oh, okay, I'll do that. And he said, I will take you. 
So he took me to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was 25 years old, and man, I, I looked young, you know, I really looked young. I mean, McDonald's wouldn't even hire me because my pimples weren't big enough, you know. <laughs> People used to say to me, are you looking for Alateen? And there'd always be some old bitty there. You know the kind, the one that knew Madame Butterfly when she was a caterpillar. <laughs> Who would say to me, it's so nice that you came to AA before you had trouble. And I used to look at them and wonder why they thought I was there, you know? It's not like I woke up one morning and thought, wow, I think I'll do AA today, you know? <laughs> and there was always these guys that would say, boy, my name is John and I'm an alcoholic. And when I came to the A&A, Things were tough. And then they'd look at you and they'd say, I spilled more booze on my tie than you ever drank. Sort of intimidating, you know, when you're 25. Everyone else was older. They had a young people's group, and I went to it. There was like eight people there. And I think the next youngest after me was like about 35 or 36, you know, which seemed rather old for young people to me. And so I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and I started to go to meetings. And after a while, the family was happy, the in-laws were happy, the home life was getting better, and I thought, you know, I might have been a little bit hasty about this. After all, it is an Irish disease. And I need to repay the family for all the things that they were deprived of, so I went and got a part-time job. Now, I have heard a good definition of egotism, and that's obesity of the head. <laughs> and I have to tell you that I certainly suffered from that because, you see, I had no sponsor. Someone said to me, why don't you get a sponsor? And I said, I don't need a sponsor. If you were as smart as me, you would need a sponsor. They said, why don't you read the big book? And I said, I did read the big book. And they said, well, read it again. And I said, why? How many times do you read a book? And so I got this part-time job, which I, I worked at nearly 40 hours a week, plus I had a regular job, and I didn't go to meetings. People came around for a while, and they would say, uh, you want to go to a meeting tonight? And I'd say, no, nah, man, i got to work. And they'd say, well, you know what happens if you don't go to meetings? And I'd say, not to me. Maybe you, but you see, I'm young. I found out about this. I'm smart. I don't need what you guys have. I mean, you old guys, you got to sit there because, you know, it's, to me, it's like a retirement place. All you, if I ever get as old as you, maybe I'll go to AA so I'll have something to do. But I'm young and I'm okay and, I, you know, I, I'm going to do life. And I didn't go to meetings. <laughs> During this period of time, uh, my youngest child, my daughter, who was about a year old or so, one night we were watching TV, and I hadn't been to AA for some time, and uh, we were watching TV, and she had a convulsion, and she stopped breathing. And, you know, we, we were in a panic, and I grabbed her, and I tried to make her come to, and she wouldn't come to. And somewhere in, in the panic, I ran outside in the yard with her, and I set her down in the grass, and I started giving her mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. And every time I would blow air into her lungs, they would expand, and every time I would stop, she would stop. And I don't know how long I did this, and I don't know if I would have been able to have stopped on my own from trying. But somewhere along the way, she started to breathe. 
Now, if I hadn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't have been there that night. She would have died. And you would think, considering all that and considering the fact that I hadn't been to AA, but I was sober because I had come to AA and by the grace of God, that I would have said at that moment, I would have looked at myself and I would have said, thank God I went to Alcoholics Anonymous because my child would have been dead if I had not been sober today. But I never said any such thing. All I thought about was going out and drinking. And not too long after that, I started using drugs again. And not too long after that, I started to drink. And I knew that I was headed for a very big failure, but I didn't care. But all the ingredients were there because, you know, no one fails until they fail on the inside. And that feeling was already there. Now, I know we don't all come here and make it the first time, and I always like to say something for those people that don't. Because, you see, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I came for all the wrong reasons. Now, I know you all came out of sincerity, but, uh, but I didn't. I came for all the wrong reasons. And I didn't want particularly to come to Alcoholics Anonymous at the age of 25. But something happened when I came here. And I like to call that the magic of AA. Because in spite of myself, there was something about the firm handshakes and the friendly smiles and the look in your eyes that got me. And what I discovered when I went back out and started drinking again was that that magic began to erode. That each time that I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous, there was a little less of the magic. And I came back a lot. Longest period of sobriety I had for the next four years was three weeks, and I only had that once. And each time that I came back, there was a little less and a little less until I knew that it was a fact that I would die coming or going from Alcoholics Anonymous. I also noticed a few other things about that time. I noticed that when I got up to get my 10th white chip of the month, that the applause was not as enthusiastic as I remembered been a while since anybody offered me their phone number but I kept coming back because I had nowhere else to go and it always comes a time in every drunk's life where he just wants to come in from the outside and sit somewhere where he can just stop the world from beating him to death and be in a room with some people that are sober if he's ever been to AA he wants to come back even if it's for an hour, even if you already know when that hour's over, you're going back out. I understand what they're talking about when they talk about being powerless over alcohol, because that described me perfectly, powerless. By this time, I was divorced. I had moved to this uh, row of apartments that they had made for people like me, Actually, at one time, they had been chicken coops, and they had uh, moved the chickens out, lowered the rent, <laughs> so people like me could move in. It was the kind of apartment that, uh, it was convenient for alcoholics because the door to the bedroom was about this far above the floor, so if you couldn't open the door, you could always crawl under, you know, I mean, I, was, I always thought that was kind of nice, and it had a contour couch in it there that really didn't start out to be contour but it sure was now and this is where I was 
and I had decided that uh, I would commit suicide because it didn't seem to be any other answer. Now, this was 1968, and back then there was a, a rock group called The Doors. Remember The Doors? And they had a song that was about 12 minutes long that was entitled, When the Music's Over. When the music's over, turn out the lights. So I decided that I was going to die to the tune of When the Music's Over. So I got my contour couch ready and I got the pillows propped up. We have to do this right. And I set the record player and I got my contour couch with my drugs and my booze and I lay there and drank and waited for the record to end and waited for Chico to end. And the record ended and I was still alive so I had to get up and reset it. <laughs> I told you we have to do this right. So I went back and lay down again and the record played and it ended and I'd get back up. One of the times while I was waiting to die or the record to end, I had a convulsion and I fell off the couch. And when I was able to start to think a little bit again, you know how that is, the thought occurred to me that this wasn't exactly the way I wanted to do it. This is not exactly the way that I planned it. And the amazing thing, the amazing thing about the insidiousness of this disease is that that was followed by this thought. If I can just get up off the floor, I'll be okay. Here I am laying in my puke in the chicken coop and I'm thinking if I can just get up off the floor, I'll be okay. That didn't work, so I decided that what I would do is I would make a list of all the people that harm me. And I'd get this shotgun and I'd go around the next day and I'd just start blowing people away. I put them in order, the ones I wanted to get the most first case I didn't get everybody. The night before I, this was to happen, because I had figured this way I wouldn't have to kill myself, the police would find out that Mad Dog Cortez was loose, and then they'd gun me down and it'd be over. And I had reasoned that collectively or individually they all had a lot more to lose than I did. The night before, I found myself at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know if I walked, I don't know if I drove, I don't know if someone took me there, I have no idea how I got there. I just know that I found myself at the meeting and everyone was standing and praying, that's all I remember. The next thing I know is I was at the home of the man who was my sponsor. And he had stuck by me through all of this. And I don't remember very much about what he said except we're sitting out in front of his house and he said to me, have you looked at yourself in the mirror? I don't think you're going to make it another five or six weeks. We talked a little bit about it. And he said to me, do you, just, do you think you're willing to go to any lengths? Do you just think you could try? And I said, uh, maybe, yeah, I guess so. And he said, well, any lengths for you? Let's just make it five meetings a week. If you can just sit your butt down for an hour, five nights a week. That's all I'm asking you to do. Man, I was so insulted. Because I thought, you know, I was this wonderful person. I figured he was going to give me one of these climb the highest mountain, swim the deepest ocean type of any lengths. And I looked at him and I said, okay, I'll go, but I won't listen. <laughs> and then a wonderful thing happened. 
This could only happen in Alcoholics Anonymous because, you see, he was an alcoholic. He knew that behind all this phony front, this, this anger and, and, and this hostility and this defiance, that there was a scared little boy inside, this broken, beaten, helpless, hopeless alcoholic that was still lashing out at the world and saying, I'll go, but I won't listen. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, that's okay, Chico. You don't have to listen. Just go and sit there for an hour or five nights a week. And I said, okay. The next night, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous again. It was January the 20th of 1969. I've not found it necessary to take a drink of alcohol or substitute since. I didn't know it would be that way at the time. I remember saying to him, I just can't get up and get a white chip. I just can't. I mean, I had enough white chips to start my own casino. <laughs> and he said, that's okay. We know the date, you and I. I said, okay. And the next week I got the white chip. And of course they all knew. And I started going to meetings and I went more than five nights a week. When I had three weeks, I had tied my record, and I said to my sponsor's sponsor, who I called my grand sponsor, I said, you know, I feel better about these last three weeks than I felt about anything in a long time, and I still had no idea that I was going to stay sober. And I just had no idea. God digs wells of joy with spades of sorrow, and the time for joy was about to begin. Now, I want to tell you, when I came here the first time, they said to me, can you stay away from one drink for one day? And I said, sure, can't you? <laughs> On January 20th, 1969, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, really came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was staying sober a few minutes at a time. I couldn't do 24 hours. I could only do a few minutes. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was impotent, and I'm happy to report I recovered from that. <laughs> I was hallucinating. I had about three sentences left in my head, and I would tell you sentence number one, then I would tell you sentence number two, then I would tell you sentence number three, then I would tell you sentence number one. You know, and, and most people, after about a minute or so, would get up and leave. You know, this sort of the way that it was. And it took me 13 months before the daily obsession to drink and use drugs left. Every day, I wanted to drink and I wanted to use drugs more than anything in the world. But I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I listened to people. I listened to one old-timer that said, Kid, I had that obsession for four years. Three months ain't nothing. Then he said, six months ain't nothing. And I hung in there because I thought, well, he made it four years before the obsession went away. And on the 13th month, the obsession was gone. And I was so grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I did have one other problem when I came to AA, and that problem was I was an atheist, you know, and, and I was a type of atheist that if you said, God bless you, I'd say, I don't need any outside help, you know, sort of like that. Heard about the dollar prayer for atheists, right? When you call up and 
ring it up, no one answers. Heard that? <laughs> There's a little story about atheists that, that someone had told me that I like. It had to do about two guys that were stranded on a desert island, and things were looking pretty bad. They were out of food and almost out of water, and the one guy said to the other, man, this is really desperate. I don't know what to do. I mean, if I wasn't an atheist, I'd pray. And the other guy said, yeah, well, me too. And he said, well, I don't know anything about it. And the first guy said, well, I did go to a church one time. And he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm so desperate. I'll try anything. And he said, let's do, let's do whatever they did there. And he said, okay, okay. And he said, all right, here we go. B25. <laughs> I22. You never know, it might have worked. <laughs> there was a poem that I liked back then that was written by a man called William Henley, and it was entitled Invictus. And the last four lines said, It matters not how straight the gate, I charge with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And I thought, yes! Except I didn't know at that time, I found out later, that he committed suicide. <laughs> not too good. My sponsor told me that I had to ask for help in the morning and I had to give thanks at night. And I had said to him, I don't have to do that, I'm an atheist. And I'm not going to tell you what he said from the podium. It was very colorful. But he told me that I had to do this and so I did it because I, I somehow I knew that my sponsor, if I didn't do it, he'd know. You know, I'd come to the meeting and he'd say, I can tell by the way you're walking that you did not ask for help this morning, you know, or something like, yeah, it is, they just know everything. So I had to do it, and I would, I would just hit my knees, you know, I just barely hit my knees on the floor in the morning, I'd say, help me, and I'd be up. <laughs> At night I'd say, thank you, and I'd be up. And I was afraid this would be contagious, you know. And I thought about that a lot, and what I thought about is that the reason that I felt that way, and the reason that I told everyone that I was an atheist, is because somewhere along the way I had begun to feel that God could not forgive me. For what I had done. And of course I couldn't forgive myself for who I was. There's a story in the Gospel of John about the eighth chapter that has to do with a woman that was caught in adultery. And the Pharisees drag her out to the Lord and and they say, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act, which I always thought was interesting because there was only one person, you know. <laughs> I wonder where the guy was. <laughs> and they said, according to the law of Moses, she should be stoned. What do you say? And he didn't say anything for a while, you know. He, he, he was writing on the ground. I always figured he was writing her names. And uh, they, one by one, they began to leave. And when they were all gone, he looked up at her and he said, who condemns you, daughter? And she said, no one. And he said, neither do I. And you see, what I found in Alcoholics Anonymous when I came here was that this was not a program of condemnation. This was a program of forgiveness because we've all learned that lesson. There is nothing to condemn, but there's much to forgive. And no matter where we've gone in our alcoholism, we're still one drunk talking to another drunk, and we share that love. When I was four months in the, in the program, nearly four months sober, I got married again, which goes to show you I still had a death wish. <laughs> Best thing I can say about that is that we saved two other people. 
and I had another sponsor, and the best way I can describe him is that he was a little to the right of Attila the Hun, you know, he was like that. I was not too well in those days, I was pretty paranoid. I, when I went to a meeting, if I saw two people whispering to each other across the room, I thought they were some kind of a signal, you know, and they were talking about me. And when I went to work in the morning, I, I took the welcome mat and I put it at an angle and tried to memorize the angle. And then when I came home, I couldn't remember the way I left it, and that sort of made me crazy, you know? <laughs> and and if, you, if I loaned you anything, I mean, if I loaned you my pencil and you didn't give it back, you were in big trouble. But this guy had loaned me, or I had loaned him $5, and he didn't pay me back. He only had one arm. And he would sit at the meetings, and he'd talk about going fishing on the drift boat and doing all this other stuff like that. And he didn't pay me back, and I'd think, my $5. So finally one day I decided I was going to fix him. And I was home honing my machete. Someone said to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm going up to the club and I'm going to see so-and-so and I'm going to demand my five dollars. And if he doesn't give it to me, I'm chopping his arm off, his only arm. And knowing child psychology would work, they said, have you talked to your sponsor? And I said, no. And they said, you afraid to? And I said, nope, I'll show you. So I called my sponsor up. I told my sponsor what I was going to do, and he had a moment of silence on the phone. Finally, when he recovered, he said, what do you think the judge would do to a guy that chops a one-armed man's only arm off? <laughs> I didn't say murder, and he said, if he lives. So he, he told me that I needed to pray for this guy, I needed to forgive him, and I needed to tell myself that I gave him the money. I never got the five dollars, I never chopped his arm off. And I prayed for him, and I forgave him, and I gave him the money. And it was just, you know, just like that, so wonderful. See, I always thought that my way was the only way I was right. And, and even in school, I was like that. There, there was a little story we read in school about in the fourth grade that, that uh, is entitled uh, St. Ives. As I, as I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with nine wives, you know, and so on and so forth. So they asked me to read it, and I read it, and I said, as I was going to St. Louis, I met a man with nine wives, and I read a little bit. And the teacher said, can anyone tell me what Carlos read wrong? That's me, Carlos. And this one little kid in the back goes, I do, I do, I do. You know, she was probably an Al-Anon, you know. <laughs> and the teacher says, yes. And she said, he said St. Louis, it should have been St. Ives, you know. And the teacher said, that's right. You know, a little gold star for her, right? So she says to me, read it again. And I said, as I was going to St. Louis, she said, how do you spell Louis? I said, L-O-U-I-S. And she said, spell what's on that page. I said, I-V-E-S. She said, what does that spell? I said, Louis. <laughs> My sponsors got me real busy with the program. They got me into inventories pretty quick. They thought I needed it. And I started into the steps, and, and there was a lot in my life that I had to work on. And one of the things that had really bothered me for a long time was my father. Now, my father died when I was 13, and, and uh, a year before he died, we had gotten in an argument. I was 12 years old, and I had shouted at him, I hope you never work again. And six months later, he died from cancer. And I remember sitting in the funeral home and looking at the casket, my father in it, and thinking I gave him a death wish. 
And I spent a lot of years carrying this around. You know, I gave him a death wish. I hope you never work again. Echoed over and over and over. And it wasn't until I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I realized and was taught that this was something that a, a 12-year-old little brat had said, and that it wasn't a death wish. And there was a way I could make amends to him, and the way that I could make amends was by treating those living relatives that I have that are older with the love and respect and kindness that I hadn't given him. And my mother's still alive. She's 86 years old. And I have an aunt that lives uh, not too far from us in Florida, and she's 88. They live a long time in my family. And that's where my amends can lie, making amends with them. I got active in service at my sponsor's insistence. Eventually, in spite of myself, uh, I was elected delegate to serve the South Florida area, and it was a tremendous privilege to do this. I remember the, the, the last Saturday of the second year that I was delegate, when we stood up to, to say the Lord's Prayer, and we all held hands, and I cried like a baby. Not because I wasn't going to be delegate anymore, but because I was so overwhelmed with the miracle that had happened in my life, the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes we take miracles for granted. Sometimes we, we forget that we're all miracles. And at that particular time, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had, had, had performed a miracle in my life because I was no longer the person that I had been before. There's a healing that goes on in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's like the story of the ten lepers who cried out to be healed. And the Lord told them to go to the temple and show themselves. And then it goes on to say that on the way, they were healed. And I like to think of the healing that goes on with each and every one of us as part of the journey, because it is on the way that we're healed. The three children that I mentioned, uh, my second oldest, at this time was doing drugs and, and, and all that, you know, he was into that. And we went for a ride one weekend to the northern part of the state, and we got to talking about drugs, and he got to talking about the drugs that he was using, and I got to talking about the drugs that I had used. And somewhere in the conversation, he said to me, Dad, this is really neat. I mean, most parents would just totally freak out, you know. But I mean, we're just talking about this like we're talking, you know, with friends. And I said, well, I tell you what, Don, I've paid my dues, and I am not paying yours. And it put everything in a different light. And my oldest son, when the year before, uh, or the Christmas before I was divorced, I had gotten him this telescope. And it didn't work. It was broken. You know, it didn't work. And uh, I had said, I'll fix it. And I had promised to fix it and all this, and I never did. And when I was out there, I would think about that telescope and how I didn't fix it. And somehow it became the focal point of all the failings and all the unfulfilled promises and all the broken dreams and everything else with my children. And I thought about that a lot. And one Christmas he came over, and his girlfriend had given him this beautiful telescope. And he said, Dad, come out, I want to show you this. And I went outside. And you know what I thought of when I saw the telescope. And I said, son, I've got to tell you something. And I put my arms around him, and I told him how sorry I was for all the 
broken dreams and unfulfilled promises. And how sorry I was that I never fixed the telescope. And he said, that's okay, Dad. I love you, let's look. And I said, okay. That wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was living in the chicken coop and I was getting my drugs, the guy that was supplying a lot of my drugs was the man who uh, married my ex-wife later on. And they wanted me to sign adoption papers for these kids. They offered me $10,000 and a plane ticket anywhere out of the country if I would sign the papers. And, you know, being a good alcoholic and, and, and drug addict, I strung them along for about seven weeks, you know, and they were bringing stuff. And I, finally he came over and he said, we've been waiting long enough, now make up your mind. At this time I weighed about 100 pounds and, and I was in the shape that I was in when I came to AA. And I straightened up what was left of me and I looked this guy in the eye and I said, you know what, I'd rather die than sign those papers. He said, okay. And that was it. And I didn't see him anymore. Now, some 10 years or so later, my daughter asked me to give her away. And her stepfather, same man, had said to her, well, I'm your stepfather and I've raised you all these years. And she said, yes, but he's my real father. And because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was able to walk my daughter down the aisle and give her away. And I'm so grateful to AA. I mentioned that I had been married for a second time. I didn't mention that the first five years of this marriage was sort of like open warfare. And then we had a ceasefire. When I was sober about 10 years, I asked my wife for a divorce and then we decided that we would try to just hang in there, you know, do the program thing and hang in there and keep the AA image up and all of these things like that that sometimes we do. And so we had sort of a partnership. Now in AA, someone said, that I, uh, I don't remember who it was now, there's so many wonderful speakers, but someone said that, you know, we either grow or we go. And I think that we do change in Alcoholics Anonymous and sometimes the changing involves moving away from each other. And when I was over 16 years, I asked my wife for a divorce. It took her about five minutes to say okay. And we were divorced. Uh, she's, she's happy. She's, she's remarried. Uh, she's remarried fairly quickly. And uh, she's quite happy, so it was the right thing to do. It wasn't a matter of anything being right or wrong. It was a matter of people pulling away from each other. Now, when I, you know, when I had come to Alcoholics Anonymous the first time, I was sort of a searcher, and I guess I had been most of my life. Uh, I could say that I was looking for God and love in all the wrong places. And in those early years when I was in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I had never, I was the kind of person who didn't have a lot of emotions, and I had never really been in love or anything. And even though I was married at the time, I wasn't in love. I had a family, and I, I had the responsibility of having children. And Shortly after I come into AA, I, I fell in love. I was working a store one day, and, 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 and there she was. I mean, she was, she was this blonde, beautiful woman with the sad, haunting eyes. I looked at her, and I was instantly in love. Unfortunately, it was a portrait, not a person. But I knew that I wanted to just walk out into the world and see if this person existed. But I couldn't do that because I had a family and children, but I never forgot the pain. All these years had gone by and I was an Alcoholics Anonymous, 16 years sober, 17 years sober. 
Now I'm single in AA again. Man, what a trip that is, single in AA. Wow. You know, it's sort of like when you send your picture to the Lonely Hearts Club, they send it back and they say, we're not that lonely. <laughs> I found out very quickly that I did not want to be an AA emotional yo-yo up and down because I saw my friends doing that and I decided that I would probably would never marry again, you know. I would just be single the rest of my life, never marry again. I'd just sit at meetings and lie about gratitude. <laughs> Become a chronic malcontent. You know, I mean, if I'd have been a disciple during the miracles of loaves and fishes, I probably would have said, big miracle, six weeks of leftovers, you know. <laughs> But we never know what's in store for us. It, there's a, there was a man that lived in the, in the previous century. His name was William Coppers. And he wasn't an alcoholic, but he was very down in his life. He was sort of at a bottom in his life. And he had decided to commit suicide. And what he had done was he had uh, put a rope around the rafters and got up on the chair and put the rope around his neck and he jumped off the chair and the rope broke. So he decided he'd stab himself to death. So he wedged the knife in, in between the cracks in the floor and he threw himself on the knife and the blade broke. So he decided, well, he'd throw himself in the Thames River, it was in London. And he, he got a cab and he said, take me to the river. And the cab started taking him to the river and the London fog came in and they couldn't find the river. So finally he said, never mind, I'll find it myself. And he got out and he started groping from door to door to door to door, trying to find his way to the river. And he tripped over a doorstep. And when he got up and he saw what door it was, it was his own door. And he went inside and he wrote these lines. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. So about the time that I was shooting my mouth off at meetings and saying, well, I will probably never marry again. I am so grateful I'm here and I'm just going to be the AA single old timer. I was at a meeting one night and in comes walking Beverly. Now I figured I had seen everyone that was on the AA scene in our area. And I had never seen her before. And she came in and, and she uh, had celebrated a year, but she, had, she wanted to get her uh, a medallion from this group. And so she had come to this group to get one and she uh, got it at the end of the meeting. So naturally, after the meeting was over, I went over and I said, can I have a hug? Congratulations. <laughs> Strictly in the spirit of sobriety. <laughs> You see, when she walked in, I looked at her and I thought, my, 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 my. <laughs> and so she said, sure. So I hugged her and we talked. I mean, we talked. You know, there was some real rude person there that wanted to go home and kept blinking the light so we quit talking, you know. I wasn't sure if that's what was happening or I was having a spiritual experience. But, <laughs> <laughs> but she invited me to her group. And I have to tell you in all honesty that I had immediately started telling her who I was and I said well you know I was a past delegate from the area and she said that's nice I'm the intergroup representative and then she said I'm program chairman for our group and I thought oh isn't that sweet she's gonna ask me to speak and I have all my speakers she said <laughs> and then she said why don't you come to my group and I said well maybe I will you know you got to play cool and so the following Tuesday was her group meeting now I got ready three hours early and then I rode around listening to my head which was a very bad experience and then I walked into her group and she said hello and I said hello 
and I talk to this guy and she talked to this gal. You know, you know how to deal with this. You know, you talk to someone else and you're going like this, you know, kind of looking around. And then we went into the meeting and I sat at one side of the room and she sat at the other. We had a typical AA courtship, if there is one. We went to Denny's after the meeting and we talked for hours. And we sat at the, at the meeting in the room, always across from each other, or not, not together. You know, we didn't want anyone to think anything was going on. And, and everyone, you know, I looked at her, she looked at me. If she looked at me, I kind of smiled and looked away. If I looked at her, she smiled and looked away. And everybody else in the group watched us. <laughs> they probably have no idea what was said at those meetings. <laughs> we went to a couple of dances. Uh, and. and you know, I mean, it was, it was just unbelievable. We were like two little kids. There was these strange feelings that were going on inside of me. I had no idea what they were. I had no idea. And I said to her, you know, it's a very funny thing what's happening. Uh, I must be coming down with something. Because I seem to have lost my appetite. And I can't sleep at night. I mean, I sit up till 5 o'clock in the morning every night. I just can't sleep and I don't have any appetite. And she said, you know, it's funny, the same things happened to me. And I said, God, it must be something that's going around. I mean, we just never put it together, right? And so this, you know, this went on for a while. And the one thing that I did was that every Friday night I went to, we have a lot of rock and roll dances in our area. There's about six clubs, and they have at least one rock and roll dance a week in every one of the clubs. And I went to the dance every Friday, but I didn't ask her. Because this was sort of my way of saying, well, nothing's going on with me, you know. Now, I have to tell you that up to this point, we had never even held hands. And all these feelings were going on inside of me. And it wasn't too long before I started thinking, I think I want to marry her. How do you ask somebody to marry you when you haven't even told them you love them? You know, we hadn't even held hands. And so this was a dilemma. But she was getting a little tired of this Friday night dance routine that I was doing because I didn't ask her, but I told her I went. So finally she says to me this one Friday, she says, well, I think I'm going to go to the mall and go shopping. You never know who you'll see at the mall. And I said, oh, well, I, I, you know, I'd go with you if you'd ask me. And she said, uh, well, what about the dance? She wasn't going to let me off the hook. And I said, well, I'd rather be with you. And she said, you're invited. And we went to the mall that night and we ate and we talked. And we had talked about everything there was to talk about. We talked about lifestyles. We talked about food. We talked about clothing. We talked about homes. We talked about children. We talked about grandchildren. Incidentally, we were grandparents. We have four grandchildren. We talked about everything that could be talked about. And we sat that night at this little restaurant in the mall, and it was sort of a summation of everything we had talked about. And when we walked out of there, she slipped her hand in mine, and we smiled at each other. And she thought, and I guess I'm telling part of her story, but she thought, I'm going to marry him someday. And I thought, God, why can't you get the nerve to ask her to marry you? <laughs> so <clears throat> the following Tuesday, we agreed to meet at Denny's, and she was going to see someone that she was sponsoring. And uh, they, it wasn't until 1120 at night that we met at Denny's, the longest night of my life. I mean, I watched TV, turned it off, turned on the radio, turned that off, got up and got a soda, sat back down, got some popcorn, threw it away. You know, I mean, it was awful. So finally I met her there and we talked and she looked at me and she noticed I was very nervous and uptight and she thought, uh-oh, here it comes, here it comes. He's going to tell me he doesn't want to see me anymore. And I want to ask her to marry me, but I couldn't figure out how you did this, you know, I mean, I just couldn't figure it out. 
so we talk and talk and pretty soon she says well you know it's three in the morning we probably should be going right so we left Denny's as we walk outside I, I had the nerve to say to her uh, suppose we could sit in your car and talk for a little while <laughs> she thought this was the strangest man she'd ever met so we sat there and talked and talked and, and finally I said to her uh, I, I'd like you to think about something and she said okay I said I'd like you to think about us being married and she said okay I can do that and I said, well, what I mean is, will you marry me? Could you marry me? Would you marry me? I mean, I didn't know what to say, you know. And, and then she did this number. She looked at her hands for about 300 years while I held my breath. <laughs> and she said, yes, I'll marry you. And so we, we began to plan our wedding. We were going to get married in the church that I worshipped at. And, uh, you know, we started doing all that. A couple of weeks after this happened, we were coming home from a dance, and, and one of the last songs that they had played at this dance was a song by Air Supply entitled Every Woman in the World. You know, you're every woman in the world to me. You know that one? Okay. You're my fantasy. You're my reality. Well, on the way home, you know how we are, guys. We always run our mouths. Girls, all girls have to say is, what do you do, or something, and that's it. They don't, they're set for the night because we'll tell them the world, right? So all of a sudden, I remembered the portrait. And I said to her, you know, I've only had these strong feelings and the way that I feel inside about you one other time in my life. Not a good way to start a conversation. <laughs> and I started to tell her about the portrait and how there was these feelings of, of being totally in love and enraptured and taken in with this person. The feelings of wanting to go out into the world and look for this person even if they ever existed. And I noticed she was getting kind of quiet as I was talking, you know? And finally she said, my God, I posed for that picture 22 years ago. I'd like you to meet the woman in the portrait, my wife, the woman I love, Beverly. Would you stand up and let everyone see you? Now, if any of you are atheists in the room, I don't know what that does for you. <laughs> but I can tell you one thing, there is no way you could put this together. The remarkable thing about this is, she worked for the lady that lived next door to my aunt. I never saw her. Our kids went to the same school. We never met. She bought gas at the same gas station that I did. Shopped at the same grocery stores, ate at the same restaurants, went to the same department stores, lived within a few miles of each other was intergroup representative and went to the meeting, my home group that I attended, one hour before my meeting started, which meant as she was going out, I was coming in. We never saw each other. And I have to believe that the reason for that is because it just wasn't God's time. It just wasn't God's time. You see, we, we learned a few things along this journey, and one of the things that we learned was that we never really knew what we were looking for. After I was divorced, I, I had kind of figured that out and I decided that I was going to make a list. And I made a list of everything I would ever want in a mate. And I had mentioned this to Beverly and she had done the same thing. She had made a list of everything she would ever want in a mate. And this was great because I never knew what I wanted. You know, someone smiles at you and you say, oh, that must be the one, right? Now, when that happened, I could think about my list and I could say, nope, that's not the one. 
and I didn't have to go out trying to make things happen because all of my life I tried to make things happen. I tried to make marriages happen. I tried to make jobs happen. I tried to make friends happen. I tried to make life happen. And I guess what you people have taught me is that life really is none of my business anymore. That it's really God's business and not mine. We learned a few other things. We learned the difference between being in love and being in heat. We learned the importance of courtship. We learned that there are stages that you have to go through. And when you skip those stages, sometimes you pay for them. I don't know how it is here, but in our area, we have a lot of people talking about relationships all the time. And we have a lot of short-term relationships in South Florida. And we have learned the importance of courtship. We learned that when we were married that one and one makes one. It does not make two. There was a movie a while back that uh, probably none of you saw. It really wasn't, you know, big hit. I kind of liked it, you know, which I don't know that says that I like corny movies, but it was called Ishtar with Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. And there was a line in this uh, club repertoire that they do afterwards that, that I liked, and it said, Life's just the way we audition for God. Let us pray we all get the job. And I kind of like to think that that's what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, that we're doing our audition for God, you know, staying sober one day at a time and learning how to put these principles into our life. Learn a spiritual way of life and a wonderful recovery. And I like to think about that. You know, we have five children between us and they're all adults. And when Beverly and I got married, I have to tell you that none of them were happy. Now, two of them are happy. Her children are happy. But at the time, none of them were happy. Because you know how it is when you're an alcoholic parent, even though you're in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and you've done all these things, sometimes you still pay and pay and pay, don't we? Want to make it up. The time came when I had to say to my kids, look, I don't want to be guilty anymore. I won't be guilty. I don't want to be responsible for whoever you are. You're grown up. I don't want to pay. And I'm not going to. One of our children, Beverly's son, was in and out of the program for about four years. Went to jail one time and we let him stay there for three months. And he bounced in and out. And we just had to let him do his thing because, you see, we couldn't, we couldn't do it for him. It was much harder for her than for me. But today he has almost a year and a half in the program. And that's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, that he's even survived. Because this was, this was a kid that nearly bled to death two years ago because of drugs and alcohol. And today he's got a year and a half in the program. We have a nice little home out in the country. We have chickens and goats and turkeys and ducks and all that. And, you know, and we live out in the country on a dirt road. And it's really kind of a nice little way to live. And we've in spite of the different problems we've had with children, I had a heart attack three years ago, we kind of felt like things were kind of going pretty good. And about a year and a half ago, my wife had a stroke. And I thought, God, why are you doing this to us? I mean, I know you brought us together. There's no way we could have done this. Why are you doing this to us? And I got angry and I... And I 
cursed God and I and I shook my fists in the air and and, and despaired. And our good friends Bob and Sandy, who were on the program with us in in uh, Arkansas last year, remember that Beverly is like night and day from then. And they were there and they shared their love and support with us. But you know, I was so angry. And, and after Arkansas last year, Beverly had a some, some, uh, couple other strokes. And it, it left her with a seizure disorder. And there were days when she would have 50 seizures in one day. And I had this anger inside of me and this hate. And I couldn't see the good in this. And I couldn't see what was happening that, w that any good would ever come out of this. And it took me a long time to see that one of the things that was the very wonderful thing that happened was that we had for sure learned to circle our wagons. That we got so close You see, we've never had a we've never had a fight since we've been married. We've disagreed a few times, but we've never had a fight. We get along. We're very, very much alike, and we get along together very well. But there's times when there's things like this happen, and you're lost. You don't know what to do. I would look at her, and I try to do what I could to help her, and I didn't know what to do, and I felt totally helpless and hopeless, and angry. And today, you know, she she's just doing so remarkably well. I mean like a different changed person. And I know that whatever's happened in our lives has to do with another turn on the journey that we have to walk. That God didn't do this to us. That God didn't forsake us and that God's always there. And that God has allowed our lives to take the turn that they have because he has a greater miracle in store for us. And I know my wife is a miracle today because her left side was paralyzed and she can walk and she can use her hands. And the one thing that we had that kept us going during that time was that we knew that there was a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other called Alcoholics Anonymous. It always extended that hand and that love. Warm smiles, hugs, happy eyes, a common bond and a love of a power greater in ourselves that we share with each other. And isn't that what sobriety is all about? Isn't that what life's all about? You see, back then when I said, well, I want to do life, I had no idea what doing life was. Today I know I'm doing life, and it's a wonderful, wonderful life. See, like a lot of you, I've been lost in the wilderness of alcoholism, and I've climbed the mountain to behold the Canaan land of AA, a land flowing with the milk and honey of sobriety because we've all walked through the valley of the shadow of death and we'll fear no evil for God is with us as you and I hand in hand 
trudge the road to happy destiny. God bless you.